Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we hear stories from everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. All right, cousin, we are live. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to just say, Jerome, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Jerome. It's great to be here. <laughs> so we are joined by my cousin, Jerome, who... Uh, is visiting up here in northern Michigan, all the way from the big bad New York City, and uh, he is a sommelier. Nailed it. Nailed it? <laughs> ah, I have such trouble uh, pronouncing that, and I I usually make a joke about it, but uh, it's kind of embarrassing. Somalian. Somalian, sommelier, sommelier. Yeah. Wine guy. The wine guy. Basically. On LinkedIn, it just says wine guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> the absolute... Uh, pinnacle of wine experts uh, but why don't you i'll tell you what just just so for the audience you want to just give a little breakdown of what that is and what you had to do to get to that level yeah yeah sure so originally i think the idea was really to have a wine expert on the floor of a restaurant and when someone was ordering a bottle of wine off of a menu or if someone brought in their own bottle of wine they just needed to make sure as a guest that what they were getting was real right you know like lots of wine fraud so someone be able to like pull the cork open it taste it examine it and say like yep this is a 500 bottle of bordeaux or nope this is corked and you shouldn't drink this at all right where so, did you get it yeah 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 <laughs> um so it kind of became a way for for people to feel safer about ordering and then it morphed into this i don't know like celebrity worship sommelier culture in the last like 10 or 15 years and on the other side of that was like the snooty sommelier that was trying to upsell you like a 200 dollar bottle when you only wanted to spend like 60 bucks yeah, yeah. um but in my head it, the sommelier is just a person on the restaurant floor that helps you pick wine um and then it also keeps the wine inventory of the of the restaurant and making sure that it's stored properly and that it's priced correctly on the menu and that it's aligned with the the cuisine that the chef is you know bringing out of the kitchen so everything is aligned and makes sense you know nothing's like kind of out of place so well and it's an important thing because i mean most restaurants isn't isn't the alcohol sales and and wine sales sort of the key to making any sort of profit yeah it's huge yeah yeah and like yeah liquor is a big part of it wine is a big part of it the the food cost can be high enough, especially if we're talking like once it gets to certain really high end ingredients like Kobe beef and Wagyu and caviar and, and really expensive like dried ham like prosciutto and stuff that's coming out of Spain and Europe and expensive cheese and all that. So selling someone a sixteen dollar glass of Grey Goose and soda can really help out with driving all that money <laughs> to the bottom line. Right, right, exactly. Well and and how I mean you said that sort of there was over the past decade or so a bit of a, a celebrity thing that has come out. Do you think that's from some of those movies like uh, Bottle Shock and uh, Sideways? And yeah, I def there has definitely been, and I don't know. I'm only 35, so I've been doing you know restaurant stuff only for just a kid. Yeah, exactly. I'm, in, I'm just totally new to this. Yeah. Um, I really found out about some of these myself when I started working at a restaurant in Boulder in Colorado and it was 
partially owned by a, a master sommelier. And so I got really into what that means and, and um, what he had to do in that term through kind of that lens. But probably between 2000 to 2008, you could see a lot of really expensive wine be opened in, in Chicago and New York. And there were auctions with hundreds of thousands of dollars and people just popping bottles that are really, really expensive. And then in 2008, things kind of yeah. come, come down. Yeah, everything sort of slowed yeah. down in 2008. Exactly. And then the mid-2000s is when like the Psalm movie came out. And yeah, like Bottle Shock and, and um, Sideways when people were started talking about Merlot and Pinot in different ways. Yeah. And, and everyone kind of started to pay a little bit more attention. And there's some ladies on the restaurant floor that were opening expensive bottles or passing these exams or opening restaurants of their own kind of around the same time that like eater and food and wine were focusing on restaurants and wine pairings and top chef was coming out so all this stuff kind of happened to focus on restaurants and soulmates became one of the i think main characters in in that story yeah because we can wear a suit with a double Windsor and walk around holding like a $2,000 bottle of wine. And there's some cachet to that. Um, and it's kind of a polished version of, you know, the, the kitchen team and Anthony Bourdain and tattoos and up until two in the morning, like cleaning the whole kitchen and yeah, yeah. we're sitting there sipping Sip, burgundy, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, I, it's, and some of it's earned and some of it's more of the, of the narrative around restaurants. And the, I, again, I've, I haven't been there for, for that level of, of, just bananas opening bottles and things like that. But I think that really it started in the in the two thousand tens. Okay. Yeah, and that Saw movie definitely played a huge part of it. Oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah. yeah that one uh you'll have to refresh my memory on that one. Mm -hmm. So it's a documentary and it's about four guys who are going for their master sommelier exam. Okay, okay. And they've they've passed the advance. They've been studying for like months and years to get this. They have like tasting groups. They're also working at restaurants as sommeliers, but then before work or after work, they are going through flashcards and calling each other, quizzing each other about like questions over theory and doing these big tasting groups. And the documentary films them through the exam and then when they get the results and then there's been two follow-ups afterwards. But now these guys are, are they've are, they're already really great sommeliers and professionals when the movie was filmed and when it came out and now they're oh they must like be every, huge. yeah everyone everyone knows their names and right. they've, been, they've yeah. gone on to do like really amazing things um but from that movie that's where like mom understood kind of what i was doing <laughs> right yeah exactly that's that and i i can definitely relate to that one because you know obviously when i tell people some of the things that i do they're like what what do you mean yeah sail, sail around the world huh totally and then you show them on a globe or you show them a, a documentary or something like that. I mean, there aren't too many documentaries. Uh, what's the one? I, there's a really good one about sailing around the world, about the first race. I think it's called Deep Ocean or Deep Water or something like that. And that one, when people see that, they kind of realize, like, oh, holy cow, okay, that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I remember the – I mean, when I was – I can't remember how young I was, but it was a while ago, the Vendee Globe – was a feature on the Today Show, and it was like ev like there was a little segment every day for a week about some really young woman doing the solo circumnavigation nonstop. Oh, I wonder, I wonder who that would have been. What what year was that? Do I don't. Know? I was I was I was like 
12 or 13, so it had to be the mid-90s. Oh, okay. That that could have been the uh, 97 Vendée, which was like a... It just had such epic drama. People died in it. Yeah. There were rescues from one Vendée Globe to another guy. Um, the well, big this... one was Pete Goss rescuing... Um, Donatello, oh, I forget the other guy's name. That was in Godforsaken Sea, right? Yeah, yeah. And basically, so the other guy who was who wasn't an official racer because he hadn't done his qualifying right. run, but he still went on and and he went on and did it. <laughs> but he ended up. But there there were so many. It was like a really bad year to be in the Southern Ocean, mm-hmm. and uh, they ended up. He ended up losing his keel, I think. And was on the upside down hull of the boat for I don't know how long, but Pete Goss beat back up wind in a boat designed for nothing but downwind sailing. Right. And was able to pull him out. And that one actually sort of relates with the one because, um, you know, when he pulled um, the Frenchman off of his boat, rescued him, the first thing he handed up was a bottle of champagne. I remember that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then he proceeded to give him a warm cup of tea. Yeah, exactly, because one's British and one's French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that story. Oh, man, it's so crazy. Yeah. Well, I think that, so the the one that I remember from the Today Show was one of the first ones where they had, she put cameras all over the boat. Oh, okay, okay. And this is way before, like, the, the little cameras that people were putting on their snowboarding helmets. And the yeah, last, like, little five, GoPros. The, yeah, this is... I it was probably like Tracy Edwards or something like that. Or maybe it it might even been um Dane Ellen MacArthur. Oh so, really? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. I always try and you know, I know those those sort of uh like Dane and uh what's the one for a guy when you're uh Sir. Yeah, yeah sir. Sir. Yeah. Like sir Richard Branson, <laughs> Sir Robin Knox Johnson. Yeah. Dame know. Judy Dench. There you go. There you go. I figure why not? Respect yeah. it. You know, it's like doctor or something like 100%. that. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Um, so, what what do you actually have to do to what What are the levels of your of that profession? Of yeah, sommelier. So first, I think sommelier is more of a position or a title at a restaurant, and like that movie, Psalm, and the the more and more interest I was poured into, the more that it was kind of thought of that you need to actually take these exams. Yeah. And that is honestly something that helped me define my like trajectory, but it's not mandatory. You don't need a special pin or certification to so run you a wine have, program. like a card that says, Ooh. no, you don't definitely not. I'm a Psalm. No, I mean, you, I could just print those out and, and it doesn't like nothing is what the exams do. And there are four levels and I'll totally talk about it, mm-hmm. but it, it is a... It's not secret information, is it? No, not at all. But it's more of like a credible way to demonstrate that you know what you're talking about. Like a degree, basically. Similar, yeah. It's like there's an independent body, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an independent body that holds exams and they get harder and harder every like level that you go up, obviously. Is that just in America or is that started in started in the UK actually. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And then but but then there are different ones. So like the Court of Master Sommeliers is about wine service. And there is a huge focus on how wine is sh- should be purchased and priced and stored and opened and the routine of going over to a guest at a table, presenting the bottle, taking right. it away, opening it, decanting it. How do you present the cork? Where does the empty bottle go? Who do you pour for first around the table? So all of those things are really geared towards wine service in a restaurant. And that's, I think, what what people get confused about with the 
sommelier thing is that there are different certification organizations that are doing other things. Like there's a Masters of Wine program and there's the Wine Spirits Education Trust. And those are definitely similar similar programs, but SOM, the movie just highlighted this one. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, like you can get diplomas where you actually write long papers about vinification and where vines are growing or like chemical processes or or winemaking and storage and there's a whole bunch of other different elements but psalm for whatever reason was the one that everyone really yeah, kind of focused on dialed in. well yeah. it would that be considered more front of the house yeah absolutely so yeah i mean somebody that's that's working more on like the packaging and and where it's coming from that that'd be mm-hmm. sort of behind the scenes so these guys you guys are the you know the ones right up there. Yeah, shiny as a penny, like right? Holding the bottle of wine. Yeah, but gotcha. but but now because now everyone in wine moves from generally right. You can't and people do, but generally, I think that some ways are actually looking to get off of the restaurant floor and do other things. Whether that's opening a wine retail shop or becoming a brand ambassador for a larger wine right. oh, okay, company. Yeah. So there's all these different avenues. But I mean, if you're 40s and 50s and you're running around the floor of a restaurant like up and down stairs and putting away wine like that's a really difficult gig so yeah and that's kind of where I've had some personal I don't know what to call myself because I'm not on the floor of a restaurant anymore but I still have this you know certification and and people still call me a a somebody with like friends and family what do I get but I haven't worked the floor of a restaurant in like three years So for me, a sommelier is someone who actually works the floor of a restaurant. Yeah. And that's that's a very classic interpretation of it. I would never tell like a a master sommelier who is running a a wine retail empire that he's not a sommelier anymore because that's – because he got that – so it's kind of basically – excuse me. Basically, for me, a sommelier is someone who's working the floor. You don't need a certification to have that title. Yeah. Um. But through the court, it's kind of allowed restaurants to examine a resume of an applicant and seeing, oh, you have a certified sommelier certificate or an advanced sommelier certificate. You kind of know what you're talking about then, you know, as opposed to like nothing on there and taking a chance with someone who might not. Trust me, I know. Exactly. I know. But there are world-class wine wine directors and sommeliers and, and people that are what can, what are the levels? So in, in the court, there the first one that you have to pass is intro, and that could be anybody. And the questions are they're very basic, but it also demonstrates that you know a little bit more than this is a red, you know, and this uh, is a white. So pretty super basic. Yeah, yeah, like wine enthusiasts and collectors, and you know, just gen- the general public can take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of like people in the kitchen, like cooks and managers and people who are in the restaurant, I definitely think that it's something that. That we're seeing more and more. Oh, it's just like a little resume builder. Exactly. Almost, right? Yeah, and and really, they do a great job of breaking down wine in a way that makes sense. Yeah. For people who, like, if you if you are a baker in a restaurant with a great wine program, you might want to learn a little bit more about the wine that's being housed and poured. Even though you're just doing the, even though you're just baking all the bread and doing all the pastries or whatever that is, so taking this little intro class. And a weekend where these master sommeliers are talking about wine and describing, oh, well, Burgundy is in France and it's made from Pinot Noir and these are like some of the top producers and this is what it tastes like and 
this is Bordeaux and it's made with these grapes and it tastes yeah. a little bit different. Let's try them side by side. So it really is just kind of an eye-opening way to get a, a little bit below the surface of yeah. that intimidating level of wine. So that's, and that's just like, that's just one. intro. Yeah. Intro. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's definitely work. You learn a ton. Yeah. Um, I imagine. But it's, yeah, it's just like the first step. The certified is what's next and that's level two. And it, becomes a little bit more um, service focused, like like I was saying earlier, where you have to like open a bottle of champagne for an examiner and pour, let's say, four glasses or eight glasses and take those glasses and walk around the dining room oh, really? and make sure that no one spills. And they all have to be even. And they're going to ask you suggestions for like, like for mine, they were celebrating a promotion there are gonna be four of us at the dinner table, but I recognize, you know, a few other people at the bar, so I'd love to pour some champagne for them. And for dinner, I'm gonna get like pheasant and she's getting steak. So is there a good wine that you would recommend? Oh, we actually prefer Syrah. Oh, I've had that last week. Anything from France. Oh, I was really thinking more towards here. And they keep on going with questions until you fail. Oh, really? They just keep pulling the thread and then do you do you know any producers that, that you could recommend? Do you know any vintages that you could recommend? Oh wow. And if just trying to trip you up. Either trip or just know the level of depth that you've been able to oh, like quite, research yeah, and learn. Yeah. So for me, I, I suggested Syrah and I was gonna go uh, I think it was Syrah from California and she goes, No, we actually prefer French Syrah and then I get into like Cote Roti and Hermitage and she asked me about producers there. And at the certified level, I just kind of forgot. You know, I was yeah, scanning yeah. my brain to try to remember any Syrah producer in France. And that's kind of what they're trying to do is is like keep pulling the thread and see yeah. how much depth you know for, for that particular level. Wow. That, I, I We pretty much had to do almost the exact same situation uh, when we got our RYA um, Yacht Master. What does RYA stand for? Uh, the Royal Yachting Association. Okay, cool. So it's over in England. And... You go through. I. I mean, we we were studying and, and practicing for months and months. But uh, when it comes down to it, the final exam, you get on a boat for like two days. There's like usually four students and then one examiner. Yeah. And that's exactly what the examiner does. Yeah. He's basically just he or she. They're just just grilling you the whole time, mm -hmm. question after question. And they they typically like to really put the pressure on by telling you that if you you know, if you make one mistake, you're not going to get this license. Right. And so you're already sort of stressed out. Right. It's not quite true, but they're just trying to, again, ascertain how much of the information you've pulled in and all that sort of stuff over however long you've been trying to uh, get ready for yeah. it. Yeah. And like, if you can apply it, I'm guessing like while you're physically doing something else, they're also going to ask you questions that have nothing to do with the task that you're performing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and they'll the I I remember they looked at a lot of how we were interacting with the other crew mm -hmm. because you sort of take turns like one person would be the captain and all the rest would be the crew and you know, if you were kind of being a jerk and barking <laughs> at people and stuff, they'd take that into account. Totally. And, you know, it wouldn't, I don't think they would, you know, completely fail you for it. Right. Unless you were being completely unreasonable. But yeah. uh, if you were helping everybody out and doing that, they see that as, you know, good seamanship. So yeah. that, that definitely helps. There's a similar kind of, um, that's also kind of applied at these two, the certified and the advanced, and I'm and I haven't taken it, but I'm guessing the the master level. But instead of it's being a good teammate, which totally makes sense, mm -hmm. it's are you like a good host? It's hospitality. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants a, a 
crummy psalm up there. Exactly. Who's all grumpy and thinks he's, you know, God's gift to the wine yeah. world. Yeah, or like snooty and, and just like talk, like, because there is a chance probably at these exams where you can go off about the different, like if you really know your stuff with different areas and different grapes and different vintages, oh, you, can you can go in. right in. But then are you playing the exam if you want to tell them everything? Or are they a guest where they only need to know what right, what was right. what was the 2004 vintage really like? Yeah, and exactly. then you can kind of answer in generalities, or you can say, well, in August it was, you know, everything it was hail and it decimated sixty-eight yeah. percent of the crop. So only at this particular very wet vineyard, spring that year. Yeah, and like flowering was was early, and then there was a frost and it killed half. Like that's all good to know, but at an exam situation, I don't know if a guest really would want to hear all that. So the question is, do you kind of show off to an examiner because they might give you more points, or is it a real? example of a of a guest at a table at a restaurant who, yeah, who yeah. just wants to know if it's drinking well right, <laughs> you know right. wow. but hospitality i think is really important so if like while i'm opening a bottle of champagne at a, at a table for for this exam if it's like a loud pop or if it spills everywhere <laughs> like that's not great well, let me show you how i'll <laughs> open this champagne with a knife yeah I've seen yeah. that video a few times exactly and it's super cool like for family gatherings, like I've done that with cousins, yeah. but maybe in an exam, you don't, you, you want to pull that back and, and be more just, I really think there are a few people that are involved in the court that are trying to get like the service exam renamed, like the hospitality and service exam. Oh, okay, so there's yeah. that focus less on just the rote mechanics yeah. and more on being like a, a gracious host even in an exam setting. And that's what, that's part of what they're testing you on. Okay. Which I love. I, cause that's where, I really learned about restaurants was this was this MS in Boulder, Bobby Stuckey, and he's like a like the platonic archetype of a hospitality professional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like really understanding that it is the service industry. It right. is about creating an experience for your guests. Right. And if you can make it the most memorable experience possible right my so my certified when i was pouring the four champagne glasses at the table and these are in they were they i think that they were flutes but you're pouring champagne at the table but also we have i recognize those four people at the bar i'd love to pour them four glasses as well so you got eight glasses of wine coming out of one bottle and usually we're going to be pouring four to five glasses out of one bottle at a restaurant right because a bottle is 25.4 ounces yeah, and you're selling a product, and it has to be yeah right. So and so in my head, you know, you're you can you can pour light and top off, but you don't want to do that twice, you know. So you're really trying to nail it the first time. And I got a little ambitious, and so the first seven were pretty much aligned, and then the last one didn't have enough for a full pour, so it had like half a glass. And in the exam setting, like, well, I'm screwed. You know, yeah, like that's yeah, right. like this is this is a very important part of a like, third. Dude, you can't even pour. I right, know, bro. But but due to the fact that it's a hospitality exam as well, I went back to the examiner slash host and I was like, I'm so sorry. It looks like you know we, I ran out of wine a little bit for that last glass. I'd be happy to pour something sparkling from behind the bar when she arrives. And the examiner was like, Well, I paid for this four hundred dollar bottle of vintage champagne. And you want to pour one of my guests Prosecco that was opened yesterday. So that's not really 
the same thing, is it? And I was like, you know, you're absolutely right. I'm going to go downstairs and get another bottle of what you ordered, and I'll take, I'll take the cost of it. Nice. So nice. it's that. I had no idea that I could <laughs> kind of think on the fly like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I ended up passing. I wasn't a perfect exam, but I think that that was kind of instilled by, by Bobby and by reading about other hospitality people, and that was where I was really focusing on was let's make this experience great. And even in an exam setting, if someone was going to get Prosecco and seven other people were enjoying champagne, like, that's not great. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, how does yours taste? Exactly. <laughs> so in addition to the service exam, there is theory, which is like a written down test. Uh, always got to throw theory yep, in there. Yep. Yep. And then there's tasting. It's blind tasting. And, and when I did the certified, it was just a red and a white. And I think that now it's two reds and two whites. Um, and what are they, do you have to name off exactly what type it is and what kind? And yeah. It? Yeah. So one of the things I think that the court did really well and you'll in, in some, you'll see it all the time. It's, it's, we just refer to it as the grid and it is kind of a mental checklist that you go through to assess the soundness and quality of the wine. And this is kind of a great demonstration about how wine quality is a little bit it's a blend of qualitative and subjective or quantitative and subjective, right? Where if wine was just completely subjective, 100%, then you wouldn't be able to correctly guess wine if it was poured in front of you blind and people can, right? you know, so there's, there are some, some definite characteristics that certain wines from around the world have. Yeah. And the grid kind of helps you assess those characteristics and helps you figure out if this wine is of good value or not, or if it's drinking, the same way from this particular region or not, or if it's like an outlier, if the producer is doing something different that makes it stand out from what like a wine from that region should be like, um, like in Burgundy, uh, it's high acid, generally medium plus to high acid and, and kind of medium tannin and medium, medium plus body. And as you go kind of up the quality level, you'll get more and more notes of new Oak because, new oak barrels can only be used once and they're expensive because once you use it once oh then, the next yeah. harvest is not new anymore right, right. so you have to keep buying new oak and that's where you store the wine and it imparts different aromatic qualities and different kind of feelings that you get when you're actually drinking it uh-huh. so if you're going to get a real expensive bottle and it doesn't have those new oak you know influences then you know yeah. it, that someone's off it's like someone's weird it's almost in a in a way I, I would assume you almost have to be like a detective with your, your nose and your, your tongue. and That's 100% it. Holy sp- Like How? when I would talk to mom, I, w- I would tell her that like I'm, I'm basically going to Sherlock Holmes these wines. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. find little clues and it's, and it's deductive tasting. And how so to develop that skill mm-hmm. or was it, was it something where you, you already sort of felt like, oh, I can kind of do no. this already? No, totally. Totally like, totally I didn't know it. what. I remember graduating from college and some recipe that I was cooking wanted like dry white wine and i called uncle bill and i was like what does dry white wine mean yeah i didn't know and he was like it's like picnic wine like chardonnay I'm like that doesn't help but that's what i'll buy so i came into the restaurant industry not knowing really anything about wine at any level other than like red white rosé yeah yeah um the restaurant in boulder um so bobby and his partner lachlan who's the chef they started a restaurant called frosca and that the style of that restaurant was fine dining um, and really focused on a very specific region of Italy called Friuli uh, in the Northeast. Okay. And 
it wasn't pan Italian. It wasn't red sauce. It wasn't. It was like very specific to this particular cuisine, and and really a focus on the particular wine coming out of the region as well. Yeah. A few years later, they opened a more casual pizzeria, literally next door, um, where the prep kitchen was shared, and you could like kind of walk back and forth. And it had a an oven that was built by uh, Stefano Ferrara, uh, which is right outside of Naples, and it uses the lava rocks that are coming out of Vesuvius. It's like a legit. It burns at like nine hundred and fifty degrees. Oh it cooks pizza in like seventy or eighty seconds. Yeah, yeah. it's insane. Um, oh, but whereas one was fine dining, the other was much more casual. And where one was, you know, champagne and burgundy and expensive Italian wines and expensive French wines and expensive American wines. Pizzeria Locale was no real wine over like sixty at the time, sixty dollars. Oh, okay, it was right, all right. Italian, and it wasn't Pinot Noir, and it wasn't Chardonnay, and it wasn't Cabernet Sauvignon. It was like what Nurella Mascalese, and yeah, wines like that where it doesn't. You're never gonna have to to. You're never gonna see that really in an exam if you're going through the sommelier thing. Yeah, if if a if like an aunt or uncle asked me about a wine that I like, I'm never going to tell them Norella Mascalese. It's really obscure if you're outside of that. Yeah, I mean, you where know? would you even find it? Exactly. Right. Like Sagrantino and and Can I get that Vernaccia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really hyper focused on these on these smaller smaller kind of wines and smaller regions, and not the big, not the 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 most well known bottles of the world. Yeah. So when I started, I got really in deep in all these obscure Italian wines, and I didn't have really great classic like Bordeaux and Burgundy and Napa Cav and Sonoma Pinot Noir until I got really into studying for these exams. I didn't have a a good comparison of why these wines are why the Italian small obscure wines are small obscure. I yeah. just that was what I started with, and then I zoom and then I got more classic. And I think that a lot of other people start with classics and then Italian wines confuse them because it, it's not Pinot Noir and Cabernet. I had the other experience. Yeah. Well, do you think that helped in the long run because you were, you're basically trying to differentiate between wines that are all super similar? Yeah. So you basically started off in the advanced section and then when you got brought back to, you know, this is a Pinot and this is a Chart or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Then it was sort of far more blatant. It for me, it really helped shape where I went after Pizzeria Locale because I did have this great working knowledge of Italian wine. Mm-hmm. So when I got to New York and I started working at a restaurant called Marta, their wine list was very similar to Pizzeria Locale's. They had a, oh, okay, they had a right. great champagne um, whole column on the wine list, which was separate, obviously yeah. from Italy. But the Italian wines that were there were very similar to the ones I had at the pizzeria. It wasn't a bunch of we, – we did have, like, kind of a reserve list of really more expensive, more classic fine dining wines like Burgundy and Bordeaux, and there was some Rioja and other cool stuff. But generally, it was a lot of the same wines that I recognized from Pizza Locale. I now was serving at a New York City restaurant. Right. Oh, which man. was really cool for that me. Must, yeah, that must have taken a little pressure yeah. off. But it really was once I started kind of going through, like, tasting groups and going through, like, that grid with a bunch of friends – um, or like at, at work, we'd have a little wine class too. And that's where I was able to kind of start getting into like buttery California Chardonnay yeah, and yeah. like high acid Riesling from different parts of the world that I wouldn't really have tasted every day, uh, working at Locale. 
So essentially, I mean, you, you do have to, you just had to grind it out, yep. taste it all, compare it all yep. constantly. And when you're doing that, are you actually drinking a lot of that? Or when, when you're really trying to work on it and focus on it, I'm is spitting. that where you're spitting? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, there are definitely situations for both. Oh, yeah. Y- you sure. know, like if, uh, like we had wine class sometimes in the morning and then we work like a lunch shift and a dinner shift. If I was, drinking the four or five glasses in front of me would i would and i was with like but it's so yeah good. and i was with colleagues and managers and sometimes these tasting groups were at the restaurant so you couldn't really stumble out onto yeah know, onto right? the dining room table um but there are other times a little bit later when i was in new york and it would be after service like i'd literally be closing marta and i'd meet up with a few of my colleagues at their apartment and they would bring some wines that were like open where a guest would leave them a little bit or something that was open that was pouring by the glass, but they didn't have a full glass left, so they would just take it. Yeah. And they were all testable. It wasn't like drinking to drink. They were, all, they were like, talking about them. It was also, like, 2, 2.30 in the morning. We had just gotten off 10 hours <laughs> yeah, of work right. in a restaurant. Like, well, let's, not, let's actually drink these. <laughs> we'll, we'll drink this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think it's appropriate. Yeah. So it's definitely both. Um, the tasting groups like that were really instrumental in helping i don't think just me i think everyone oh yeah you know yeah yeah, and the grid goes through what the wine looks like in the glass and then what the wine smells like and then what the wine tastes like and what it feels like when you're drinking it and then to kind of bring it all back you kind of sherlock holmes it with all these different clues and you try to guess what it is yeah yeah and and now after i don't know how, how many years have you been doing this now i started at locale in 2011 Oh, okay. So actually, this decade. month. Yeah. So it'd been ten years since like I started working at Pizzeria Locale, and probably nine since I really started focusing on wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so that was to get through the second level the certification. Yeah. yeah, the certified was just two wines, and you had fifteen minutes. So you would try to do like seven minutes on the white and seven on the red, and then you give yourself a little bit of a margin. Yeah, right. And you wrote everything down. So you can go through and you'd smell it and you'd put it down. You'd write something and go ahead and smell it and write something down. <laughs> and then at the end, you would be able to call, like, what country it was, what grape it was, what vintage it was. Holy cow. That yeah. See, honestly, that that astounds me because I just – I mean, I try, mostly when you're around, but I try <laughs> to always smell the wine and taste the wine and mm-hmm. look for flavors and, and all that. But I, my palate just isn't there. Although, uh, if you set me down with – uh, a bush light, a Coors light, a Bud Light, <laughs> mm. and it was a blind test. I guarantee I could tell you nail it. Which ones were. every time? Yeah, yeah. Or at least I could tell you which ones not bush light. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've developed that over many decades. Yep. Of research. And very similar. So <laughs> very similar story. Uh, but so when you you passed that one, mm-hmm. did you go on to the next? So I passed. Yes, I did. Um, I went to grad school for, so I got a master's in hospitality management, and that got me into uh, Danny Meyer's restaurant group. Well, that plus like just networking and knowing people and interviewing. But between working in, in Boulder for, for Bobby Stuckey, passing the certified, getting my master's, I was able to get a sommelier job in New York uh, at Marta, which is part of Danny Meyer's restaurant group. And Jack Mason was the wine director, and he was, he was very intent on us learning about wine. 
like not just the wines on Mars list. And the whole group was really like there were a lot of sommeliers and wine directors and, and master psalms in this group. So there was a focus on wine education. And I was absolutely a beneficiary of that whole mentality. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we were given tons of examples at Marta to taste wine where other restaurants were focusing on American. And other restaurants were focusing on French and other restaurants were focusing on, you know, different, different things. And there was a lot of, there was a huge brain trust there yeah, that yeah. really, that really helped us out with supplementing what one restaurant focused on, but lacked. So when I went from Marta to another restaurant in the group called North End Grill, which was focusing pretty much exclusively on French and American wines by then, I had to relearn all the things about Napa and Sonoma and all the older producers and all the really important vintages. And the same thing with France, where we started getting more and more into different Burgundy and and Bordeaux and and Champagne and Rhone and Southern France. And the guests that were coming in there had a level of expectation that we knew what we were talking about, which they absolutely should have. Yeah, oh, for sure. But I just had to go back and review, because I was living in Italy for so long, that I had to now really kind of not forget it, but it was a it was a much larger mountain to to climb and learn all about the Napa producers that we had. Yeah, yeah. Or if someone come in, they said that they liked this producer's wine. Do you have anything like it? I had to know what that meant and what that producer made wine like, and then think about our inventory and what we had at the price point that he expected, and be able to say that all within about ten seconds. <laughs> Wow. So that was where it was it was yeah, a larger right? hill. Jeez, under the gun. Yeah. yeah. How how do you uh how do you feel about about the American wines? Cuz I know we're obviously young in the game. Totally. Um yeah, know. relative, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, jeez, but they are, I mean, California is a great place to grow. 100%. Grapes. Yeah. I think that I have the benefit of of knowing what I like because I was learning. And not because I'm a collector or because my dad was a collector or because someone else was influencing me about this is a hundred point wine. This is like an $800 bottle of wine. That's really important. Yeah. I got to look at it more from what's the right word. Not logic, not academic, but, but it was a little bit colder. It was like more like I got to examine the region, Mm -hmm. learn about what, what wine style I liked already, you know, which was very much, rooted in in European and Italian for me personally and my taste like that's where I really liked so when I started getting more into California and Washington and Oregon and all the cool stuff that they were doing there I got to kind of already know what I liked and learning more about Napa I got to identify producers that kind of followed that a little more closely okay you know what I mean does that make sense at all (laughs) yeah yeah oh no no no, totally it's fascinating I mean because it for me like wine just has always been this mystery mm-hmm. and you know i i i don't want to say i rarely drink it um but when i'm here in, in michigan uh you know my parents drink wine mm-hmm. all the time and they i'm i'm sure they could probably probably pass level one maybe right probably yeah. i would be surprised if they couldn't right right but they don't need to because they know what they like they know what they like and yeah. that's and that was kind of i think the goal if you're if you're just a wine enthusiast or a collector and you like the idea of sommelieting and you and you want to be you want to learn from master psalms and do some type of educational classroom based learning yeah intro is a great way to do that but like your parents already know 
what they, they like. Know what they like, yeah. So they don't really they don't need to look into it any. I mean, they'd probably enjoy learning more about it, but I don't think they're gonna go out of their way to spend a weekend at a resort and pay, you know, oh, eight hundred yeah, some odd dollars yeah, to right, do it. No, <laughs> they'll, no they'll, they'll just call Pram down at Experance right. and see. Hey, you know, uh, let's try something new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He he sort of knows their tastes because he can watch and see, mm-hmm. you know, what they buy and all right. that sort of stuff. So yeah, wow. But but Napa itself was so interesting because it's right above San Francisco. It's right above the San Pablo Bay. Yeah. And you would think, and you know, like, the world and how generally weather works. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the Napa Valley, and I might get some of this wrong because it's been a minute since I actually read this in a textbook. No worries. <laughs> but in the Napa Valley, it's cooler in the, on the south area closer to the bay. And it gets warmer as you go north. Yeah. Which is the opposite of what you'd think, because in the northern hemisphere, if yeah, you go north, yeah. it, it gets colder, and in Napa, that's it's kind of the inverse. Well, it has a lot to do with the ocean currents, exactly, and uh, sort of the prevailing winds, elevations, all that sort of stuff. Right, play right into it. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's fascinating to learn because you know we get to learn a lot about what we call like terroir, but the the, <laughs> the contour of the earth, the way the the way that like. A, a mountain range can cause a rain shadow, which causes drought. Uh-huh, and yeah. vines, some some vines and some grapes really thrive in difficult conditions. Yeah. So the wines that are behind the rain shadow might be more expensive or more opulent or or the, the ripening is different. So all that stuff is really interesting. Napa provides this microcosm where so many things are going on. That temperature differential being one, Yeah. the valley is north to south and it's flanked by these two mountains. So the sunlight and all that. Totally. Because yeah, right. when the sun's coming up in the morning, the, the the western side that's facing east gets cool morning sunshine. Mm-hmm. And then as the sun goes over, the eastern side facing west gets hot afternoon sunshine. Yeah. Which is com- a completely different effect on the vegetation. Oh, yeah. 100%. And on the vines and the grapes. And then the center... Is like really fertile soil, but the edges close to the mountains are a little bit are a little bit poor because you have all this like runoff and drainage and gravity. So you have all these kind of differing factors between where it is in the valley, how how, how far north or how far south it is, yeah. what side of the mountain, how much like forest and trees are like. It's a really interesting area, and it's so dynamic that I think Napa Cab that term has a, a it evokes a certain flavor and feeling that you think you know what you're going to get but there are a host of outliers and those are really the fun things for me to explore and yeah, and yeah, right. find out like who's not using a ton of new oak or who has a little bit less alcohol or, or and things like that 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 I tend to enjoy more than like the big beefy super alcoholic lots of new oak like vanilla and clove and sweetness, like right. that's not my jam. I'm great that it that I'm happy that it exists and that other people love it. I think that part is awesome. That's just not what I particularly enjoy. And the way that I got to know that is by studying Napa, kind of more academically than because my great uncle had a wine cellar and was opening these really expensive bottles yeah, that yeah. all kind of tasted like that. Do you think that they were experimenting because they're such a young? Uh, sort of institution of growing. Totally. So they were just basically trying to do anything and everything. Yeah, and I think they still are, and I think that's really exciting. Like, there's a handful. Not there's more than a handful now. There's probably a ton, and including a lot that I don't know that are planting, kind of more obscure, Italian and French 
vines and grapes all across California and experimenting. I, I mean, it's it's been a few years, so I think that things are more settled, but people are still really experimenting with what grows best and, and blending different grapes. Like, like Friulano, Tokai Friulano and Ribola Gialla are two completely obscure white grapes from northeastern Italy. And there's been a ton of producers that are kind of just experimenting with those in California just to do something different or or drink what they like, you know, versus a lot of the Chardonnay that's coming out. Well, let's try this Mm -hmm. because it's worked there for hundreds of years. Why don't we give that a shot in this particular area? Gotcha. I think it's really exciting what these producers are doing. And they're not there. It's becoming where California and and the Pacific Coast has a wine for everyone. Yeah, so if you yeah. like the 100-point, 200% new oak, there's plenty of that there. But if you're looking for something like a little bit like tighter or lower alcohol or not as like big, like you can find those wines as well. And yeah. it's a really exciting time the last, last five or ten years and, and probably a little bit longer than, than I know, honestly. I might be shortchanging them. Yeah, because, I mean, when, when was it that they finally sort of broke into the scene? Was it in the 70s? With wine? Yeah. In Napa? Yeah. Well, they were making wine in that area like before prohibition well yeah they were making it but we didn't it was wasn't it considered sort of like yeah they're trying to make wine out there uh i think it started from from maybe like the it started kind of as and again my history is a little hazy i've kind of forgotten a lot about this i think the real boon that you're talking about is like the 40s 50s and 60s okay and like with charles krug and robert mondavi breaking off and 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 those kind of historic producers that have been around for a long time yeah um you you'll like those have been there for for decades like the middle of the century oh okay yeah um and also and again my history is kind of hazy on this but there's the napa valley i think it's called the napa valley land trust but it's essentially like what's there is there like you can't really build anymore oh right yeah like it's it's a super protected area so like growing vines there like you, you they're not you can't expand that territory that I'm making anymore, which means that it's all really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but out, I mean, there's, there's a, I think a few producers, probably more than that now, that are just searching high and low around California. Oh, looking for new or looking for virgin territory. Actually, looking old for stuff. old vines that have just been growing oh, wild, willy nilly, yeah, out there on their and own. like under power lines and in like forgotten towns, like all over the place that are just old. They have their own roots. They're like gnarly looking. Yeah, yeah. And they're making wine out of there. And because they don't have like the high cost of real estate, the high cost of these new oak barrels, the high cost of just the, a brand name, they're able to to make these and, and to, to get them out for people to try at a relatively re- like like uh what's the, like an approachable price point. Yeah, yeah. So they're not like the super high end stuff. And that's what's really exciting. I think John Bonet has his great book about California wine. Um and it is it is relatively approachable, but he's talking about all these great producers that are trying all this new stuff. Oh, it's cool. it's really and it came out like four or five years ago. So by now it's yeah it's probably oh, yeah, a lot yeah, more yeah. than I'm even thinking. Wow. Huh. It's cool. I, I definitely I don't know, there's there's some sense of pride, I guess, as an American just to know that we can crank out some pretty awesome, totally awesome stuff, and you know, sort of in that that American way, experiment and try new, and and sort of break free from the the old guard. Yeah, and just be like yeah, you know what? We're gonna try it this way. Yeah, I think a lot of the producers that I really like are looking at their favorite wines in Europe, and they're not trying to recreate them exactly. 
they're right, trying right. to recreate like the integrity and the process, but not to not to fool someone that they're made in Europe. They want them to have a sense of place. And I think California has that warm and sunshine and, and um, fertile, you know, where ev- like everything grows and it's lo- so they're they're kind of tapping into that, but also with a lot of the traits they enjoy from Burgundy and, yeah, and yeah, Bordeaux yeah, right. and places like that where they can kind of, or like the Rhone, they can really emulate a lot of those characteristics, but not completely replicate it in an, in a different part of the world where it doesn't really belong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nebbiolo has been really hard to do. There's been a few cool producers that are making it, but Nebbiolo is a grape that comes out of northwestern Italy, and it's best known in Barolo and Barbaresco, which the, those two towns and the two names of the of the wines that, that got their name from the towns, right. from like the communes and the, the regions. And it's been really difficult to to kind of emulate the qualities that from that specific place in Italy that makes the wine as special as it is. Oh, okay, so it's the mix of not only the type of grape, but where it's actually growing. Exactly. They're getting, right. I mean, yeah, they're getting all their nutrients from the soil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the more I learn about the network that plants and trees use, like with fungus and all this sort of stuff, mm-hmm. sort of realizing that, you know, they're connected with all the other plants right. and trees and everything that's all around them. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like you can just pull a vine and then take it over here and then plug it in and be like, oh, it'll be just the same. Well, people do do that. They and try. that's the crazy thing. But there are now, there's this there's this big swing. And I don't know exactly where we are on the arc of the pendulum on this swing. But exactly what you're saying, like you need this kind of biodiversity to be happening like in the soil and, and above it. So you might plant different little grasses and flowers and things between the rows of vines that introduce different like molecules and nutrients and, and right, and right. Minerals. Yeah. You might have the same thing. I mean, biodynamism is this idea that a vineyard is kind of, uh, in this larger environment with like different birds and different trees and different insects and, and different wild plants and, and all these different animals. And it's part of this like biome versus this monoculture. Let's take this one clone of Cabernet. We're going to yeah. put it in the ground. We're going to grow, you know, thousands of acres of it it, and it's all going to taste i mean but that's what there are some companies that have to do that right for like you know some of the box wine just yields right because you're trying to create a very standard taste for 25 million gallons of yeah and that's a whole different i because that's that's a really great example like the, the for me the best example of what you're talking about is in champagne oh okay because it's not like yeah, the 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 there are vineyard practices that are that are that vary in, on the spectrum, up in Champagne. But you kind of hit on something that's I think very specific to that area, and it's a little bit more difficult to achieve is that consistency as a brand year after year of making something that tastes very similar with few noticeable differences, like Dom Perignon, exactly, and yeah. Well, Tattinger d- yeah. and Vouve and Yeah. Well, some of those you do want some vintage variation and that's yeah. they'll only make certain bottles of wine when the vintage has like earned it. You know, like oh, when right, they right, know right. that it'll be exceptional. But most champagne is going to be non-vintage, which means that it's blended from like this one has a lot of 13 and a little bit of 12 and a little bit of 11 and a little bit of 10 to try to make it to try to make it consistent year after year. Exactly, like Right. First did in 2001. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because they, 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 especially when we're talking about those larger brands with 
a, a, a dedicated following, like people that that order Vauclicot in any restaurant they see it in, yeah. and they buy it like caseloads at a time. They don't want it to be different year they, after year. Yeah, they're expecting a certain product, right? And, and if a they did flavor, right? And if they did want something with some vintage variation, then they would buy the ones with the actual year stamped on it. Oh. And they could find the ones that are just made and harvested in, in a single year. Yeah, yeah. Then there are other champagne houses that are embracing the idea of vintage variation every year. So they they recognize that it is it's an agricultural product that is shaped by sun and wind and rain in the environment around it. Yeah. yeah. So every year there might it might be a little different here and there. The the methods stay the same and like the agent stays the same and the oak usage might stay the same. But the only variation is what, like, the earth does to the grapes. Yeah, and there's yeah. something really cool about that, too. So champagne kind of has this great... It's alive, it's, it's, essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's I, like, uh, it, it, uh, well, maybe not it's alive, but it's it's captured the life of these plants yeah. in this environment during that exact weather pattern that year. And that's what you're tasting. You're, yeah. you're basically tasting the weather yeah. in a lot of ways. And a lot of, I think, a ton of wine producers now, or and have been for a long time... Are doing this like non-interventionist or minimal interventionist style winemaking, where they're kind of like what you're saying, oh, let yeah. the grapes speak for themselves. And what's the best way to do that? Because after they're fermented, they generally have to go in another storage container while they kind of just sit and settle for a while. Yeah. So is the best way to do that like stainless steel, where it's just like cold and anaerobic? There's no oxygen getting in or out. There's no light getting in or out. Or is it something more like a concrete tank? Which allows like temperature regulation, and there's there can be some oxygen back and forth sub- sometimes, and things like that. Yeah. Or is it like a, a giant oak barrel, where oxygen definitely can come in through the porous, you know, staves, but it's so big that the oxygen impact on the wine is minimal. Or is it a small oak barrel where it's still porous, but the ratio of oak to wine, wine is much is, more even yeah, so the right. impact is much is, is felt or is it american oak versus european oak which imparts different flavors and so there's all these different levers Gosh, that these wine producers get to pull yeah it's so crazy and they're independent from what's going on in the vineyard sometimes yeah yeah you know yeah. like like they're they're if they don't own the vineyards themselves they're constantly in touch with vineyard managers you know looking at everything from the the rain forecast to the phase of the moon like when are we actually going to pick the grapes when's the best time to at like the peak of ripeness before they get too ripe like because there's a sugar level and they can do some math with the sugar level that they want with the yeast that they use and what the final alcohol is going to be yeah and if you are known for making a certain style of like low alcohol wine you don't want to pick with a lot of sugar right right but you want the grapes to also be like biologically and phenolo- phenologic phenologically 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 I haven't said that word in a long time. <laughs> but you want them, I can tell. You want them to be ripe without all the sugar. Right. Or okay. you might want a lot of sugar. So it's it's Cuz yeah, if you if you've got a lot more sugar in it mm-hmm. and you're using a lot more yeast, right? Yeah, I don't think it would be more yeast, but I think the yeast would eat more of the sugar and, and create more alcohol. More alcohol. Yeah. Right. Okay. Cuz yeah, I mean, what's like a standard standard bottle of wine, what's the percentage of alcohol in that? So for like California Cabernet, it could be 14, 5, or, and 15. Okay. Um, yeah. Or, and then there's wines from uh, like Amarone in Italy that can be like 16, 16 and a half, 17. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Burgundy might be like 12 and a half to 13 to, to maybe getting over 14. And isn't, isn't there a way to, to tell 
by like tipping the glass or something, or is it the tannins, the little traces? Yeah, like legs. Yeah. How do you? How would you know if you if you were trying to? Because there, you know, as I'm looking at our our clock here, we're getting up there in the time, <laughs> and I I definitely have some questions that I'm sure I want to know about. Yeah, but yeah. I'm sure the audience does too. But like, yeah. What what is if if I don't want to look like a complete idiot? Mm-hmm. And you know, a bunch of wine people around or whatever, and I'm I'm just trying to sort of, yeah, not look like an idiot. Right. Um. What What would you recommend? What are What are just some of the super basic things that you can you can do when you're poured a glass? Okay. To, to sort of look like you know what you're doing. Awesome. So, um, cheat. I want I want to yeah. learn how to cheat. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> and, and we could go in a bunch of different directions, like. Like, are we are we on a date trying to impress someone, or is it like a bunch of colleagues where you don't want to look like an idiot? I think that's the key. The so it's one? it's uh, saving us from embarrassment because I I don't I wouldn't want to use this this wonderful book of knowledge uh, <laughs> just to coerce somebody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so f- like for me personally, I'll I would start by like literally holding the glass on the stem closest to where the bowl is. Okay. I wouldn't grip the bowl in any particular way. I just Yeah, because like you don't want the heat it. from your hand, right? Right, yeah, yeah. And it kind of just looks, and you're getting fingerprints on Because like, I think this is just more elegant to hold. You don't have to be a dandy with, like, all your fingers up. Just kind of, and then I would swirl around a few times and smell it, not make a whole show of it. But, you, I mean, these wines do have these really amazing oh, yeah, 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 properties to it. Well, when I watch you and I watch, like, even my dad and stuff, I mean, aggressively swirling <laughs> that thing and then smelling it yeah and then swirling it again yeah and it's fun it's it is kind of fun totally. to do and uh, you can like sometimes if i'm just like, tasting wine at first like if the bottles that we've opened while i've been here it's literally just pop it pour it in a glass smell it super quick with like maybe one or two little swishes around and like okay it's not corked it's not matter it's like there's no flaws in it it, it smells the way it's supposed to smell. and that's just yeah that's just to basically be like okay this is a good bottle we can drink yeah like good as it's opposed to like ruined yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um whether it's subjectively good or whether it's what i wanted is a different question than is it sound right, right you know so i'm always checking hopefully i chose the bottle because i like it and so it's checking that and then also that it's not corked or that it's not ruined or that it has been sitting behind yeah like, well, in the when trunk you of say corked mm-hmm. what does that mean so there's a molecule called tca and I can't remember, again, I'm so sorry. I can't remember if it's like grown in the cork or if it just infects corks when they're in the cellar, but it, it literally is inside the cork. And when you stuff the cork into the bottle the first time at the winery, mm-hmm. it's just kind of living and growing in the wine. And then when you pop it open, it smells like, and there are, there are varying degrees of the intensity, but it'll basically, you won't smell any fruit really. The fruit is like totally dead. Not oh, dried, okay. but like there's, an, there's a particular absence of it. Yeah. And in its place is this kind of overwhelming wet dog hair <laughs> wrapped in wet newspaper Pretty sitting in a, in a dank basement for like a year. It is, <laughs> it's like cobwebby and musty and right, wet right. and hairy and gross. And so I'm at, at a restaurant, that's kind of what sommeliers are supposed to be checking for. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah, like yeah. if you bring in a bottle and I open it and it's corked, I would. Like, I'm so sorry, but this is corked. I'd pour some glass for him so he can recognize it. Mm-hmm. If it's a bottle out of my cellar, I would I would present it, go back to my little table, pour a little glass myself, and be like, nope, this is this is way off. And I'll go back and I'll say, sir, I'm so sorry. The bottle I opened is corked. I'll be right back. Or ma'am. Yeah. But I'll tell the host, the person who ordered the wine, this wine is corked. It'll be another second before I can come back with it. 
go back, present the same bottle, open back up, taste it. Because for me, I taste wine at the restaurant because I don't want them to, to have, have the, to experience that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or just to not, or to be like not sure, you know, or to be like this doesn't smell right. Because if you're surrounded by a bunch of friends and guests, and you have this supposed wine expert next to you, and everyone's looking at you, and you're like, I don't know, it doesn't really smell like anything. Like, I want that to be on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. And then, like, let's open a second bottle and see if that's smelling any better. Now, if the person, if the wine is totally fine and sound and, and it's it's not ruined or flawed and the person doesn't like it, whole different story. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You know? Right. But for me, I don't want that guest to have this wet cardboard smell in their mouth when they're enjoying this meal. Yeah. Or they're drinking the next That's not bottle. a way to start off the evening. It's, uh, it's a terrible, evening. terrible. Um, so... I would hold the glass and I just swirl a few times and smell it. You can, you know, drag it on the table. Sometimes That's how I do it. Pick it up. Yeah. yeah, I don't think you have to do it super aggressively, and I think I do do that sometimes. But you're really just kind of coaxing some oxygen to be mixed with the wine and then kind of spin out of the bowl, and that's where you want to just kind of. Yeah, you're just you know, it. It gives you. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a better sense of the flavors. Yeah. It's a whole sensory experience is what it's kind of supposed to, because you're like touching this glass. And if the glass is, you know, it can be really expensive and really light. So there's this physicality to it. And you're, you're feeling it. This is going to be really, you know, but you can, there's, there's a, that kind of ceremony to it where sometimes like I'll also drink wine out of, you know, solo cup. It doesn't have to be this every time. Oh yeah. No, I drank out of a uh, plastic cup. Last right. Night. Yeah. yeah. Uh, coffee mug. <laughs> well, and, and I think a lot of my listeners are, are sailors, so mm-hmm. uh, things, you know, you will almost never find a, a wine glass yeah. or flute or anything like that yeah. on a sailboat. The vessel can matter in terms of, like, are you at a super fine dining restaurant and they're pouring oh, yeah. it to you? But if you're drinking wine out of a rocks glass, like, I do that all the time at home. Yeah, I mean, like, it's obviously, it's best to drink it out of glass. Correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter the shape. I mean, those, the I would assume... The shape of the wine glass is just another way to coax the yeah, flavors out. Yeah, it can it can definitely matter, but at some level, it's diminishing returns with how much money you want to spend on your wine glasses. Yeah, yeah. You know, right, or how okay. much did you buy this wine for? If it's a fifteen dollar bottle, it it might be different, but it might not actually matter. Yeah. If it's a couple hundred dollars, or if it's a super old bottle, like so, Burgundy tends to be a little bit less aromatically intense. Okay. And other other wines tend to have a lot more. It's like a volume knob. Like Burgundy would be like four or five, and some wines like eight or nine. So traditionally, like a Burgundy glass at a restaurant would have a, a like a wider diameter yeah. to where the wine is poured into versus like a, a Bordeaux glass, which is going to be maybe a little bit tighter because you don't need as much. It's already pretty intense. So it can it can differ like that. But again, yeah, that I would be if... about that. Okay. Yeah. And, but that's going to be if you're really looking for the best experience. If you're just drinking wine, watching a movie... Like again, I've I've used, I yeah. use rocks glasses. It's as long as you're enjoying it, you know. But if like your mom was gonna come to our house and I had like three different wines for her, I would probably have three different glasses. Yeah. And if they were all actually different, then I might invest in in the right glasses. Right, but right, but again, right. it's you know, <laughs> like does the does the yeah. weight of the fork how, make a difference of the food that you're eating? Well, but it's how into it you get. I mean, you know, when I was a teenager and we used to just you know. Uh, smoke pot all the time yeah we had all sorts of different pipes and we had bongs and we had this and that and right. you really get into it 
And uh, I see a lot of those similarities with wine. I mean, yeah. where if you're really into it, because it is fun, yeah. it's a hobby and, you know, it's collectible and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's it's cool. Yeah. It's, you you want to have all the kit that you can get. Well, I'm sure there's also some similarities between like hardware on a sailboat where oh, you yeah, don't want to yeah, yeah. buy like budget stuff really sometimes. You need, you need it to be exp- like sales. Like aren't are expensive sales like quality quite quantitatively better than uh, cheap sales? Typically, yeah. Uh, it it also depends on how you use it. Yes, um, you know, just like with I'm sure a a, a glass. You right. Know, if you're just throwing it around left, right, and center, eventually it's gonna break. Right. Whether it likes it or not. Um, but if I have like a little sunfish, do I need to go out and buy a really expensive? No, sale for it. Absolutely not. But if you want to become, if you want to race it and take it to the world championships and all that, you yeah. have to have the absolute top end. Exactly. Because you're going to look for the best performance that you can get out of that sale. Right. So I guess, yeah, it's the same thing with yeah. the, the glasses. Like once you start getting in deep, like if you are a restaurant that people are spending money on wine for, they're probably going to have an expectation of the correct glasses. If you're like a super hipster joint where everything is poured into those old sake glass cups, yeah, yeah. then you can do that. Right, right, but it, right. It, it kind of depends on kind of the, the rest of it. I will say, and a hill I'll, I'll die on happily, is <laughs> I, don't, I don't like flutes for champagne. I really don't. Yeah, you know, they've always bothered me a little bit too. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why. It's a really, it's not, in, it's not, intensely aromatic you really need the the and the and the things that you were getting off are slightly more delicate like you can get like baked brioche and and all these you can you can identify those aromatics and those qualities Mm -hmm. but it's very difficult to do if the wine is exposed to oxygen in a quarter size diameter right versus something that is more sand dollarish isn't that that and that doesn't have anything to do with preserving the the bubbles Mm mm-hmm no, okay. Mm-mm. No, the bubbles will be released when, again, with a grain of salt because it's been a minute since I've studied theory, but the bubbles get released because the it the liquid inside the glass, or sorry, the glass itself has these little imperfections on it, and that will cause the CO2 to be released. And, and Oh, okay, right, Sometimes right. it's like microscopic dust and hair or imperfections in the glass, but that's what breaks the CO2 that's already dissolved in the liquid. Mm-hmm. That's what causes it to come. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. There's probably other things too, but... No, I, I mean, I really, if you're going to spend a lot of money on champagne, and champagne is inherently more expensive than, like, a $20 bottle of red. Yeah. Um, or something like Prosecco, or, and, and that's, all, that's all great, but champagne has a price point. And if you're going to spend the money at that price point and voluntarily rob yourself of half of the experience of drinking it... Mm-hmm. W- why do that? Why do that? Why do yeah, that? Right. Um, like pour it in, oh, in like a yeah. normal white wine glass. It doesn't need to be special. It doesn't need to be crystal. It doesn't need to be huge, but just something a little bit wider than a flute. It's got to be some old school thing, you know. Well, at Gatsby, they use coupes, you know, like in the 20s on all the pictures of like flappers and oh, right, even right, like right. the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. They're all they're all flutes. They're wide. I don't know where the, or sorry, not flutes, coupes. The, the short wide ones that yeah, you like, get like a they, like martini glasses but yeah, round yeah 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 and then somewhere it became flutes and if if it's your wedding and you want to do a champagne toast and flutes i'm not gonna yeah. say don't um because it's your wedding and you want those pictures and that's awesome but the best way to experience champagne is not in a flute right right um nice word to the wise yeah I like that. so then you know i would back to like the conversation where we were talking about how not to to look dumb yeah, yeah. um 
I would I would smell the wine, and I genuinely say if it's if you do like it, say oh that smells great. You don't have to pick it apart like in the movies. Yeah, where, yeah. I'm smelling clove and dried apple and cinnamon, and you don't. I don't think you need to do that. I would also avoid like oh it needs to open up. Like I wouldn't comment on <laughs> what the wine too. needs yeah, to do, yeah. <laughs> but just be complimentary of the host and say oh this smells great. I can't wait to try it. And then yeah, when you're drinking it again at a social environment as a casual wine drinker i wouldn't like do the slurping like i am prone to do yeah like yeah yeah like i it's now a habit that i can't kick <laughs> i've noticed well, that but when you got your som card you're cool man i think it's more just honestly a habit i think i have to do that now oh i'm sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I, you know yeah if you get used to it and if you've done it 80 million thousand it's just times. habitual right. um but if you're like out to dinner with people you i don't i don't think you really need to do that i would literally just like drink it and then I, I I think that's really all you got to do with it. I think it's going to evolve the longer that it's in the glass. Mm-hmm. So it's I think it'll be fun to go back and re-examine the aromatics and, and flavors. I think it'll also develop when you're eating it with food. Yeah, it'll yeah. have a different impact, which I, can be fun. I to smell the wine pretty much the whole time I'm drinking it. Yeah. Before I take a sip, like I'll, I'll take a bite of food, and then I'll smell it, and then I'll take a sip. Because I've, I've learned to... Not only enjoy the taste of the wine, but the mm-hmm. uh, aroma of the wine. Yeah, I really do. Like it's that's that's actually part of it for me. And they can be different, which is also something so so fun. They can be complementary but not identical. Right, right, right. And, and you're gonna get different things when you're drinking it than when you're smelling it. And you're drinking, you also have the physical senses of you know, on the grid. It's gonna be like acid and tannin and body and finish. Yeah. So you know, how much does it make your mouth water or how much does it dry out your mouth or how heavy is the weight of it on, mm-hmm. on like your tongue and your palate, similar to like skim milk versus cream. Yeah. Those have obviously different weights. Like we, you can already feel that in your mouth. When I said that, I bet you can be like, Oh, one's like lighter and one's definitely like heavier. So wine will have a certain weight. And if you, it's fun to pair food with, with the weight of wine sometimes, because like a big ribeye will need something with a little bit more body to it, but like, not even not even like fish, but like tacos. I wouldn't want something that overwhelms eating a taco with this big rush of something heavy and alcoholic. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's kind of similar to like tacos and beer. Perfect, perfect, yeah, perfect. Yeah, right. Coca Cola and like pepperoni pizza. Perfect. There you go. But like cheese pizza and and milk. That doesn't. That, I'm, that's doesn't not something compute, that gets not, me really excited. Quite, right? <laughs> Something's off there. Yeah. So if you take those ideas and you start putting them towards wine, like, oh, okay, that, no, that inherently makes sense in my head. Yeah. Um, what about what about the the tannins, the legs? Mm-hmm. What do they tell you? So tannins will actually dry out your mouth. They'll attach to proteins and lipids, and unless you're eating something with it, the only ones that are available for them to latch onto is your mouth. It's the same molecule as an oversteeped tea. Oh, okay. Where you know you get that drying, dry out your mouth sensation. It's it's the same thing basically, but over time, like heavily tannic, like like high high tannin wine, those tannin molecules would find each other as the bottle's aging and form chains, become solids, and fall out of solution. So when we're decanting the wine, we're actually trying to get those solids. Out of there. Out of there. And, like, leave them in the bottle while we take the, the wine out, and it just kind of flows over it. 
Oh, okay. So, and tannins help preserve the wine, so high tannin wines can definitely last a long time. Yeah. But if they fall out of solution, they're inherently going to, they're not going to be in your mouth anymore when you drink it. So yeah. it smooths out over time, too. Oh, so okay. a high tannin wine, when it's like two or three years old, it's going to feel a lot less tannic when it's 25 or, or 20 or 15 years old. And when, so when you swirl it around mm-hmm. and then you look at that glass mm-hmm. and you see those little lines. Sort so of those form. are, those are different. So tannins and legs are different. Oh, okay. Legs okay. Uh, and viscosities is kind of what that is. And those, I think they're often commented on. I don't put as much like, What's the right word? They don't they don't make as much of an impression to me because we're already, we're talking really about two things: it's sugar and alcohol. Yeah, and more sugar makes anything slower moving. Oh, okay, you okay. Know, uh, I, I mean, for me, I just I look at it and I'm like, wow, that's kind of weird how it does that. Yeah, the alcohol will evaporate faster than wine will, than than water does. Yeah, yeah. So if you're doing this and and alcohol is kind of coming off it, then there's more solution on the on the glass, which means it's gonna go down slower. So it's kind of a visual indicator that this wine might be a higher alcohol wine or a higher sugar wine. Okay. I think I got that the right way. Really hope sure. so, <laughs> Jeez, guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's part of that grid. That's that's the that's that certified exam where where you're doing the because all all you're trying to do there, they, that's another clue when you're Sherlock Holmesing the wine. Yeah, yeah. So if the alcohol is higher, and it has, you know, that that ripe jammy fruit and a bunch of vanilla. And then you drink it, and it's like a, a like a, um, like a high alcohol, medium tannin. Uh, like if it's a if it if it fills your mouth, then you kind of have an idea of, of what it is and what it isn't mm-hmm. when you're trying to make a guess about about like where it can come from in the world and what and what grapes there are. Gotcha. And so that's what you're doing on the on that piece of paper at the advanced, which is the one that I took in 2017. Everything like the, the difficult just like, gets ratcheted up equally across all those three sections. Yeah. So the service portion is generally, and it could differ. Mine was opening a, a bottle of sparkling for a table while taking their order and answering questions about cocktails, and then it was decanting a bottle of wine and answering different questions about decanting and serving that all kind of expertly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and multitasking, yeah. to say the least. And then the tasting is six wines, and it was thirty minutes. Oh, okay. And everything is oral. And that's 20, for it, no, that's sorry. for the advanced, right? Yeah, it's okay. twenty. It's twenty five minutes. Jeez. Because you had you had barely four minutes of wine, and you had to go through and say all those different things. And that was what was featured so heavily in that movie, Psalm. And and that's what they were talking about, like the grid. Yeah. So if you see them sitting around the table with like the spit bucket in the middle, and they're going through, you know. This wine is a clear uh, ruby red wine of you know of medium viscosity, um, and then they'll go into the the aromatics and talk about fruit, and they'll drink it and spit it out and talk about what it tastes like and what it feels like, and then at the end of it, they'll give like three, two to three to four initial ideas, and then one final conclusion, and then they'll move to wine number two. Oh, okay, and you gotta okay. Do six in a row in twenty five minutes. And you have you never know how you did. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Holy smokes. Yeah. I think the 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 movie is really cool. Those guys work so hard, and they've earned all their success a thousand percent. But like when we're doing, we have wine classes at Talk. Uh, every we try to do it every month. COVID's kind of run a <laughs> yeah got us off schedule. But one of the things that that's fun about that is that we're not talking 
talk works with so many restaurants and so many wineries that it would be great if, and generally people are working there because it is like restaurant hospitality and food and beverage focused. But the people that are in the company are computer engineers and hospitality and account managers and, you know, all sorts of people from everywhere in terms of careers and career trajectory. And one of the things about wine class is that we are trying to kind of teach them exactly what you're asking. How do I order wine at a restaurant and kind of have a reasonable expectation of what I'm going to get? Yeah, yeah, not just throwing a dart. Yeah, because every time I order Pinot Grigio or Chardonnay and I see like Albarino and Grunerveliner and Riesling and Friulano and I never know what those are and I don't want to gamble 14 bucks that I'm going to like it or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so so what I try to tell, and we have like new people at every one, and I try to literally say, if you've seen the movie Psalm, we are not doing that. <laughs> yeah, we're not right. going to go through like our super quick, we're going to actually talk about things like, what would you want to eat with this? Yeah. You yeah. know, or, or do you, or do you even like this wine? And I think those questions kind of lessen the intimidation, fa- at least I hope they lessen the intimidation factor of it a little bit and make it casual and approachable and whether you like a wine or you don't like a wine hopefully you've learned that you like a wine or you don't like a wine yeah yeah and the next time you see it you're like oh that was gross i never wanted (laughs) right you're either adding to your inventory uh, Mm -hmm. or you're you're excluding another bottle where you're like yep not gonna fall for that one again right like one of the things that i also i mean again just to kind of bring it down to a level where people kind of understand more at a very basic point is generally speaking when we're talking about wine from europe and sometimes people will call that the old world Uh we're talking about where it comes from and not the grapes that are in it so if we're talking about burgundy we're talking about pinot noir okay you know if we're talking about uh bordeaux we're generally talking about cabernet sauvignon and merlot and then a few others that are blended together Ah. if we're talking about barolo and barbaresco we're talking about that grape Nebbiolo. If okay. we're talking about Chianti, we're talking about the grape Sangiovese. So these areas of Europe, the, and the wines came from those areas. That's what people were ordering when they went into restaurants. I like the wine from Bordeaux. Right, They didn't right. care what grape it was. Oh, okay, okay. In the U.S., South America, Australia, New Zealand, um, South Africa, you're generally going to hear wine that's referred to by the grape. So I like, like Pinot Noir. Yeah, I want a Pinot, or yeah. I want a Cab, exactly. or gotcha, Shiraz, gotcha. or Syrah, you know? And I think that, I mean, in Europe, this is kind of funny, because there are a lot of grapes that are blended together. Um, and in, like, the south of France, the blends can be crazy. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. And so you, you, you're, it, it might seem a little weird to go into a restaurant like, I want a wine that's mostly Grenache with a little bit of Syrah, and a little bit of Cinceau, and a little bit of Morved, and a little bit of... No. Just, I like... You know, that region. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like, I like Provence. <clears throat> or, and then they're going to bring a wine from Provence. All right. Yeah. Hot shot with all <laughs> your knowledge. Uh, I'm having pork tenderloin, mm-hmm. asparagus, and uh, a salad. What what am I what am I drinking? Yeah. Is, is the pork tenderloin like grilled or grilled. roast grilled? Is it is it been marinated before? Or are there other flavors in it? Don't or throw it back in my face. Is it, is it kind of stuffed with fruit? <laughs> like other like apricot? Like preserves or something? Yeah, there's a, a fruity uh, sort of marinade on it. Okay. And then, what wine do you like to drink? Ah, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm totally oblivious. I don't know. Cool. Um, I've never had wine before. 
I would do with for me and that if that was something that someone was cooking, yeah, for dinner and I was going to go to their house, I'd probably bring Syrah from America. A Syrah from yeah. America, nice. probably from from California, uh, probably from Santa Barbara. All right, crab cakes Ooh. with uh, potato salad and corn. Yeah, the potato salad has like herbs in it, like dill. Oh yeah, egg. big time. Corns like salt and butter on the cob. Awesome. And then crab cakes. Is there any heat to it? Is a it like kind of spicy, yeah, like a little paprika bit, yeah. or something? Mm-hmm. Um, I could. We could do a few, a few cool things. Honestly, um, I like your style. Is the crab cakes? Are they like baked or do you fry? Uh these are Wait, baked. Baked. You could do a ton of a ton of cool things. Off the top of my head, I would like do like one of those Friulano, like a great crisp white wine with, from northeastern Italy. But Friulano is cool because it does have weight to it. It's not oh, like okay. super thin and light. Yeah, because this is stuff's got some flavor. It's exactly. Right. Well, and the crab cakes and the butter with the, I mean, everything that you're describing isn't like light little. It's not like ceviche. Right. This right. Is right. Some, it's and it's. But it's not heavy. You just need someone to kind of balance out. So Friulano has this really great weight and also this really lovely bitterness that if you have, like, sweeter crab and sweeter corn, the, I think the bitter, almost like almond, almond skin and peanut shell, mm-hmm. I think it adds something kind of cool. If you wanted to go full on, like, let's celebrate salt and yeah. add that salt element to crab cakes, um, there's a white wine from Sicily from Mount Etna. I just, it's just like Etna Bianco. And specifically, uh, it's Pietra Marina. It's an amazing, amazing bottle of wine that can age for such a long time. It has a similar weight, but it also has this really lovely salty kind yeah, of component yeah. to it that I love. Is it is it always? And I, I, I only from experience, but if if you're having seafood, mm-hmm. it's almost always going to be a white. Well, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think that it really depends. And and um, like if like snapper, for example, you could do like. Rosé or or and that's fishy red. fish mm-hmm. too. Yeah, okay. Swordfish has like it's almost like a it's meaty. You yeah. Know? So I w- I could do like Pinot Noir. Oh, okay. With that. Yeah, if, yeah. I mean, a lot of things have to be like where's where's the Pinot Noir from? Like, well, with fish, I might want it to be a little bit cooler. I don't want it to be very tannic and very structured because those tannins and that fish are really going to kind of clash. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you could do it. Um, there's also some really light red wines from. The Mediterranean and California, that that I think could go really well with it too. Um, if I was gonna do that, I'd also probably chill the red wine and put it in the fridge for like half an hour to an hour before, uh, okay, and kind of bring it down to, to temperature a little bit. But again, at a restaurant, if someone was gonna order twenty four like super briny salty oysters and a four hundred dollar bottle of Napa Cabernet, I would open the bottle of Cabernet and I'd serve them the oysters and I hope that they enjoyed it. Yeah, right. You know, because exactly. sometimes it's like if you, if you know what you like... To each their own. Do yeah, it, yeah. yeah. Totally. Like, who am I to say, although I like, no, no, you, you really need Albarino. With the, you, you need Muscadet. Like, no. He ordered a $4 bottle of wine. I'm going to give it to him. All right, last one. Mm. Roast chicken, peas, and mashed potatoes. The peas are going to kind of throw me, but roast chicken and Beaujolais, um, which is from France. It's, it's a, kind of the southern part of Burgundy. Oh, okay. Super classic pairing. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um, Pinot Noir, like Burgundy or Californian, prefer- and this is my preference coming in, my my particular taste, but Sonoma Coast, closer to the coast as possible. Mm-hmm. A little bit lighter in alcohol, not a lot of new oak. This kind of like salty, misty thing can come from it. And the 
I really like the the intensity of fruit that can that can come from Sonoma Coast. Oh, Mark. okay. Like really well balanced, um, really kind of fresh and and really lovely. So yeah, I would for roast chicken. I mean, that's a great canvas. You can put anything on. You yeah, know? yeah. Like Chianti can go really great with with roast chicken if you throw in a side dish with maybe like sun dried tomatoes and oregano. Okay. You know, like there's the you can kind of pull those. <laughs> nice. Yeah, like you can do it well. I I thought I, <laughs> I thought it'd be all maybe trip you up a little, or you just throw some generic answers out and you didn't either. Yeah, well, there's there's the idea. I did not come up with this. This is really kind of classic. But what grows together goes together. So oh okay, you know, you know like the the coast of France, like the Loire Valley, they have a lot of oysters, and the classic pairing up there is oysters and muscadet. Muscadet is not an expensive. We're not talking white burgundy prices. Like, yeah, it yeah. is an approachable, but it's got that same bitterness, this like kind of bright sea salt that's really light and really crisp. So with oysters, it's it could be like like almost like adding lemon juice to it, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of Italian pastas that are tomato based and heavy on herbs like oregano and 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 those kind of flavors you can also find in a lot of Italian wines like Chianti and Brunello. Um, so there are those those elements, and those were like classic and almost stereotypical. Yeah, parents, yeah, but, yeah, right. You know, they they work, um, like sherry and tin fish. Like that's a that's a really amazing pairing because it just it, works. There's yeah. so much high acid, and the tin fish is usually stored in oil, and so when you get those two contrasting elements to come together it really balances out what you're eating well and that that's one of the things that i think surprised me most when i when i first had i think it was just some some bottle of red i want to say it was like a cabernet sauvignon mm-hmm. and then i think we had cheese crackers and some hard salami mm-hmm. and just the 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 way everything intermixed was absolutely amazing yeah and i i never considered it considered like drinking something to add to the flavor of like a snack like that yeah. or hors d'oeuvres or, you know, it was, it was really, yeah. I don't know. It was, it was super cool. One of our favorite things to do in, in at home is like this highbrow, lowbrow pairing, like, like kind of more expensive champagne, like, like, I mean, not hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but like a, a good bottle, like between 60 and 80 maybe. Uh-huh. Um, and pizza. And pizza. It's yeah. Delicious. Yeah. Right. Or our champagne and fried chicken. Is another one of my kind of just favorite. I could see how that would work. It's yeah, really yeah, yeah. good. Maybe uh, chicken and waffle houses need to. Throw I think that they on should. The menu. I think they absolutely should. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, geez. Um, f- uh, there. So when Francesca and I went to Italy and we got engaged in in Barolo and we were there in November, so we were able to buy a, a white truffle during Truffle Fest. Oh, nice. Um, and on our way home, we had a little bit of it left, like a little bit. And we were, on our last night, we were in Airbnb in Milan, and we literally went out and got two like large orders of McDonald's French fries, and we found a restaurant that had like a bottle of champagne that I don't think either of us had ever heard of, and it was like 40 or 45 euros. Like We grabbed that. And we get back to our Airbnb, and we just shave the rest of our white truffle on these McDonald's French fries, and they were still like hot and salty, and now they're like truffley. Yeah, and, we yeah. and it was just this cool, weird mix of like expensive, fancy stuff and like McDonald's fries, which were just perfect. It was You're awesome. such a romantic. It was I great. Love it. I love it. <laughs> oh man, that's so good. Yeah, I I I like doing 
I I don't think that every bottle of champagne has to go with like caviar and oysters. Right. And I don't right. think anyone's really arguing that, but when you start kind of thinking about just what you like to drink and what you like to eat, like there are some general guidelines, but it doesn't have to be these hard and fast rules. Yeah, yeah. Okay, last last one. Mm-hmm. So I'm just a beer drinking guy. Mm-hmm. And I've got a date that I'm trying to do a nice romantic experience for. Mm-hmm. Let's say beach, sunset, secluded sort of thing, awesome. right? In the summer? In the summer. Um, maybe it's not too hot. I don't really know. But mm-hmm. um, I want some sort of little snack and a bottle of wine. Okay. What would you recommend? And let's just say it's a red. It has to be red? Yeah, let's go for just red. Because that, okay. for some reason, in my head, red just seems more romantic. Yeah. Um, that's hard, but but fun. Because I, I don't... And it's sunset? And you don't have a lot of money. <laughs> that's fair. Like $20 a bottle? Yeah, let's say you've got 30 bucks to blow on the whole thing. On the whole thing. Yeah. Um, you can go in so many different directions, right? It's... Like you, you, I don't think that in that circumstance you're you're gonna go wrong with Pinot Noir from the United States. Okay. And what I would look for is on the label, look at the alcohol percentage. Mm-hmm. And for me, I would probably stay thirteen point five percent or less. Okay. For something like that. So low alcohol Pinot Noir. Low alcohol Pinot Noir, and then. I mean, I wouldn't get with that. I wouldn't get prosciutto or mortadella. I would probably get like more of a harder salami, like that you have to kind of slice through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm not. I don't. I don't think the cheese would would really be a, a game changer. I would maybe try to find. I don't even think you really need cheese. Maybe yeah, just like yeah. a plate of the salami and some crackers, like triscuits or something. And maybe two tomatoes and just those little tiny ones. Yeah, slice yeah. those up. Yeah, I think if you then go you a, seem more classy. If you, like, if you go to a specialty shop and sometimes they have like little charcuterie packages, like maybe just delegate someone else. Right, to put that right, together yeah, for exactly. You and see what bothers. Yeah, no, I I think that a, a lighter. I mean, honestly, depending on where you are in the world and what your wine shop has, look for domestic reds. Maybe not like the red blend section. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe look for other reds because there's like trousseau that's out of california that's around that alcohol and at that price point and it would be delicious as like a sunset beach wine yeah yeah i mean i might skip the charcuterie or the little hors d'oeuvre things and put all the the 30 bucks towards some really towards great the wine, 26 yeah. bottle of like lighter alcohol try to put it in the fridge and keep it in the cooler before you get there you don't have to stick it back in after you open it. Right. But just kind of keep it crisp and refreshing and tasty. Yeah. Um, if it was like at the beginning of the night, that's what I would do. If, if you want to go the hard other direction, get Amarone, which is like 16% alcohol, and you could have it for dessert, and you only need like one bottle for the two of you, and you're good. Yeah, <laughs> you, right. You're laughing go, all the yeah. way home. And there's got some sugar in it, and it's going to have this like kind of chocolatey and cherry, oh, and, and the alcohol going to be higher. So it's going to be a great like – end of the evening style something so if you've had if you've had dinner already and you're going to bring like a little box of chocolates or something for for dinner or make s'mores and do some amarone or something yeah, like that there you go amarone i yeah. don't know if i've ever even had that it's cool so again this is this is one of these kind of old italian 
ways of making wine in this in this specific area and a few others, but in this area, they, they'll pick the grapes when they're super ripe and then they'll lay them on straw mats and keep them in a hut for like months. And oh, so really? And they shrivel and dry out. Wow. And then they make the wine with the resulting juice, which is not as much. Yeah, as yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And then it's it's a it's a much more high alcohol. The, the the flavors are much more intense. The volume is turned up on on everything. Right, right. Yeah. Jeez. Well, okay. So we're we're definitely getting way past an hour. <laughs> um. So I I guess maybe to uh, maybe to just wrap it up. Mm. What uh, if people wanted to dive more into if they wanted to watch something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would give them more information and just, uh, I don't know, it, it could even be just like wine movies or yeah. documentaries or anything like that. Anything you suggest? It's kind of hard to, it's it's hard, as, I think, as a movie. I really like podcasts and Lovey Dalton has a really amazing podcast. It gets really nerdy and super Sami, but he also manages, to, if you have like the basic vocabulary, he manages to, he interviews wine producers and sommeliers from, from around the world. And they are really interesting. They go into techniques and vintages and 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 special like dinners and people. Like it's a really incredible podcast. So if you start, what's to get, that one called? It's uh, I'll drink to that with Levy Dalton. I'll drink to that. Sounds um, like a good one. I'll yeah. have to listen. Uh, and then there was a, there were a few others like I think Guildsom, which was it's a independent from the Court of Master Sommeliers, but it's called Guildsom, and it was kind of a resource for people that are going through the court. They have like these amazing guides and an encyclopedic thing online, but they had a podcast too. For movies, it's a little bit difficult because it's hard. It's not like cooking, like a cooking show. And every time I see someone drink wine and try to explain it to me, I'm like, I'm, I have no idea what. Yeah, you know, right, right. So, so okay. those are really difficult. Um, the best resource that I had when I first started out was a book by Kevin Zraley, Z-R-A-L-Y. And it was called uh, either Windows of the World or Windows to the World. But it was that restaurant on the top of... Um, CN Tower? No, not the CN Tower, the uh, World Trade Center. Oh, oh okay, okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, and he was the wine director for a long time. And he wrote this book. It was, I think it's the subtitle of it. It's the Introductory Wine Course. Oh, okay. Um, and it's still sh- sitting on my shelf. And it's got a breakdown of pretty much everything that we just talked about. Gotcha. And then it gets into producers that are at different levels, different price points, ones that you should just know. I, I, and it, there are maps that aren't super detailed. They're easy to digest and, and read through. So, like, movies are a little bit difficult to, to kind of recommend. I think the Saw movies are definitely worth, like, watching. So, if you're interested in the industry and, and sommelier and kind of what the exam is like. Yeah. But I also don't want people to think that that's what. That's what the, the whole that's thing what it is. is. Right, right. Yeah. What about what well, I, I know there was some documentary, I can't remember what it was called, but it was uh, about counterfeit wine yeah what was that one that i can't remember what it was called ah geez uh was was it like rotten grapes or spoiled grapes something, something like that ah, yeah i can't remember I can't but remember it, yeah it was all about uh huge wine fraud just google oh my yeah, gosh and that's wine, because the wine, wine market for wines like that is so big yeah the yeah. temptation to to make like fraudulent bottles and rub them in dirt and yeah, they pretend found they're all old. Oh my God. And it's just full of grief. And that's, again, like those fraudulent bottles are one of the main things that some of these do. Like, yeah, try and pick those out. Yeah, right? or just like warm people. So when we're buying wine at auction for a restaurant, I'm not, I would hesitate in just getting anything that's too good to be true. I would really stick to a few very specific auction houses that look into like the provenance and where these you know, if a huge collector dies, 
Yeah, and, and all of a sudden, boom. It. Like, let's liquidate it. Mm-hmm. Who knows where he got those wines? Right. So wine auction houses that go in and kind of open just a few at random, see if they're real. They can verify their purchase from, like, let's say the winery itself from a mailing list or something like that. Versus, like, a buddy who gave it to him who left it in the back of their car for six years. Yeah, right. So it's going to be garbage. <laughs> but if I'm popping the wine and it's supposed to be 10 years old and it tastes like it's two, like, something's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Or if it's supposed to have on the inside, well, the outside edge of the cork that's not visible until you open it, mm-hmm. what it, like, where it came from or the vintage on it. And if that doesn't match, then you got another. So you got a problem. Yeah. There was a time I think where people were bringing wine to restaurants or ordering wines from restaurants, and they knew more about the wine than the sommelier did, and then oh. and then it kind of re- and it's reversed. Yeah, yeah and, that, and so now it, w- it was supposed to be more about I'm I'm helping you find a bottle that you love at a price point that you want. That is my goal as a as a someone working yeah. on the floor as a sommelier. Well, and that yeah, I mean, in a way, I guess now after just this after talking with you, I I sort of see that position of a sommelier as they're protecting me from having a bad experience getting, you know, uh, a, a counterfeit bottle, <laughs> getting yeah, basically just getting ripped off. Yeah. yeah, totally. And so. I guess next time you're in a restaurant and they got a psalm, just thank them. Yeah. Give them a little pat on the back. I, I mean, I totally think so. I think that right now, especially like coming out of COVID, so many sommeliers in a restaurant are also general managers or assistant general managers, and they're like putting out fires and dealing with hiring and all sorts of things. But there is going generally at a restaurant at a certain level, there's going to be someone who's taking care of the wine list. Someone's doing the buying. Yeah. Someone's taking it out of the boxes and putting it away. Someone's pricing it out. Someone's making sure that it matches with the food that's coming out of the kitchen and that it's not wildly overpriced or wildly underpriced. Like wine is, a, like you said, it's a huge revenue center. The team at USHG, I think, did a really great job of this of instilling this idea that wine is that a business. Mike, a little close. Oh, that better. There we go, yeah. But wine really can be like a business within a business. There are certain costs and there's yeah. Oh, yeah. a revenue stream and there's storage and there's supplies and you're going to break glasses and those... Like where do those go in a PNL? I think it's I think that all like the background of restaurants is really interesting. If you follow somebody's on social media, it's just all bottle shots. You know? Oh right, right. It's yeah. like I opened this cool bottle or or and those are great. I've done those, like hundreds of them there. And yeah. they're fun to c- kind of share and show people like someone bought this at the restaurant or I got to taste this epic bottle or something that's like a seminal important wine of the world and you finally got to try it and there's that cool stuff but then there's lots of spreadsheets and there's inventory and yeah there's, there's a whole <laughs> lot more to it than just sipping wine and being like right. ah, you know i taste yeah. strawberries but hopefully everyone has a, an experience with whoever's buying the wine whether they're going through the court or not or whether they're just doing triple duty that they're making everyone feel like if there's wine in the glass they love it and mm-hmm. they don't regret the money because at some point if you're listening to me gambling a hundred bucks that you're gonna like the wine that i recommend and you've never met me before that's true like yeah. that's a that's a big gamble I and, I, and i'm super that. sympathetic to it right you right, know? right. So my, my if if you come in to a restaurant and you say my my price points around 100 then i'm probably going to sh- and like what kind of wine that you like mm-hmm. you know if if you have a certain bottle that you've had recently that you just loved and you're able to tell me what it was or pull up a picture of it, hopefully I will give you three examples that are on our list that are all under a hundred bucks. Yeah. Uh, 
or if one is exactly what you're looking for, but it's like 110, I'll preface it by saying, this is exactly what you're looking for, but it is a little over your budget. I just didn't want you to miss it. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you might recognize. Like, I, I also don't want to assume that you don't know everything that's on there, too. Right, right. But Yeah, my, you got to read the customer yeah, a lot. My goal really is to have you spend as much money as you want and not more and have you just love the wine that's in your glass. Yeah. Because that's the best way that you're going to come back and I'm going to do it again. And you're going to come back and I'm going to do it again. And then you come back for a special occasion. I mean, like, I, I know based on the things that you said that you enjoyed and the bottles we opened, this is the move tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, playing, like, Playing that is is so much fun to be a part of that person's experience, right? And to, and to kind of grow with them and, and that relationship. They're so much fun. Well, you're definitely exuding a uh, a passion for it. So <laughs> I'd say you've you've found uh, your vocation in life. It's a ton of fun, and it is like a rabbit hole. I think the reason that I started at the like with this restaurant in Boulder and looking at at Bobby, you know, there was something about the hospitality industry that I liked, the taking care of people, but instead of bartending at this restaurant and I'm going to bartend over there for a while and then I might bartend over there and then I'm going to travel to Thailand and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to move to San Francisco and bartend there. Mm-hmm. The court really did give me give me structure. Yeah, Take yeah, the yeah. intro, take the certified, take the advanced and continue networking with this group of, of professionals and sommeliers and if you keep doing a good job at places, they'll, they'll like more opportunities will, will come and that structure is really kind of helped me in, in my career do you think you'll go eventually for the master i don't know i have a hard time thinking about it right now because i'm not on the floor as a sommelier yeah yeah so my life is kind of veered off of that that track a little bit but so after this podcast you know <laughs> the right guy what, what what's one of the fancy restaurants nobu or something yeah that, yeah yeah they hear this they're like need them get them yeah, get him over here um I, I think it really depends. It's going to be a whole confluence. I have, I don't, at this point in my life, I don't think I'm going to. Right. It, I think that I would, I would try to, to go in one of the other directions of those certifications. There are, again, like a ton of mentors of mine that went through the court and have that diploma and have like the red pin and they're all amazing professionals and I wouldn't be here without them and their help. Yeah. But at, at this point, because I am a few steps away from, from working in wine, just logistically, it'd be difficult. Yeah, yeah. It, you really have to yeah. have your head in it the yeah. whole time. And the, I mean, you have to be in it because you are at that level. You are talking about epic wines from around the world. You're talking about cigars. You're talking about port and sherry and Madeira. Yeah. You're talking about Jeez. like excellent, like excellent service. And the theory is so dialed in between like sugar levels in this region of Germany. And you and you have to have that all like as an encyclopedic, you know, just in like the a, dome, yeah, ready to pour your, out exactly. So if you're not already working in that arena, it's gonna be really, it's gonna be really difficult to do. Yeah, you yeah, can still yeah. do it. People have done it, but it's di- it's difficult if you're not constantly surrounded by it. Right. Um, so if huh. my career swings back into into service of wine, I'm not gonna say like never, but at this point in my life, it'd be difficult for me to see studying for studying for the ms and again there are amazing wine professionals i look up to that didn't go through the court at all and then there are some that got to a certain level and then just crushed their career and never really needed a certification because they went on and owned their own thing or they opened their own winery or they opened their own restaurant group and they don't have a resume 
that they need to show to anybody anymore. Hey, when I went around the world, I didn't have a a, a current valid captain's license, <laughs> <laughs> so I still Do you don't. Need one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think so because nobody will insure me anyway. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> and yeah, I haven't I haven't taken like a yachting job in in forever. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So if there are these big harbors, like like I think New York Harbor is there's a lot of moving parts in there. Oh yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna come in there not with like your own berth or your or like your own like a membership of a I don't know, like a yacht club or yeah, a, yeah. how do you navigate all the rules coming in there kind of blind? Like do you I'm sure there are maps and things. Well there's yeah, there's the rules of the road, um the coal regs regulations basically to um prevent collision at sea mm-hmm. and everybody follows them everybody knows them or i i shouldn't say everybody because there are a lot of people that don't but um you know the number one rule is always keeping a good lookout and so you're always aware of what other boats are around you and you know as far as navigating you you've got a chart or or these days you've got an iphone with mm-hmm. avionics <laughs> on it so it's telling you where you need to go okay um it's not that difficult but yeah that's where uh training comes in uh for i mean we learned it in england and it's called pilotage and it's one of the most challenging parts like sailing across the atlantic is easy Mm -hmm. it's when you get to england and then you need to go through the solent which is probably comparable to new york harbor and then pull into some little tiny port town and know what the tides are doing and whether or not you're gonna have enough water underneath your keel and all that sort of stuff and that's where the training really helps everything out, and it just prevents it, it gives you a better better chance of not screwing up right than if you just go in blindly, yeah, you might just make it through because you're lucky, but chances are if you keep doing that eventually you're gonna you're gonna run aground and then it's dangerous for you, other people, and all yeah. that sort of stuff so I just see all these like sailboats so we take Francesca's grandpa lives on Staten Island, and we'll take the Staten Island ferry there and back, yeah and Every once in a while, I'll see like these obvious like kind of sailboats that are just pleasure crafts. I'm like, how? Oh yeah, are you doing this? Cruising. Not pulling your hair out with like anxiety. You get used to it. Well, I mean, just the other day when we were out here sailing on the small lake, mm-hmm. I mean, there were a lot of boats around, yeah. and that whole time, I my job on that boat was to always be aware of every boat that was around us right. because I I also know there's a lot of people that don't know what they're doing. Right. There's people that are drinking, doing whatever, right. and and in order Lashing to make float sure boats together, no yeah. one's at the helm. Oh, it, it gets <laughs> it gets pretty wild. And in order to make sure, and I guess in some ways, I was kind of like a, a sailing sommelier uh, because I wanted to make sure that you guys all had a very carefree, fun, safe experience. Yep. Um, and to be Check, able to do that, way, amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no. I just had to make sure that my head was on a swivel. I could see everything that was coming, yeah. and I paid attention the whole time. Gotcha. That, and I never got off the boat. Right. Especially <laughs> when Sven was on it. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's going to listen to this podcast, so I'm just giving you a little guff there, bro. Love you, guy. <laughs> no, I mean that whole day was was fantastic, and for just got a second ride in, which I was so happy about. Because, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, she was like, can't you just, she did great steering yeah. it, you oh, did it as well, I mean, it. yeah, it's, it's fantastic, I, I love sailing, I, I think I like sailing as much as you like wine. Probably. <laughs> All right, man, well, let's end it there, uh, thank you so much, Jerome, for, for doing this, I'm sure this is going to be one of the most popular oh, thank you, podcast oh, episodes I'm, I have. I'm happy to, This I, I feel bad sometimes because I do, I don't want to be like the one 
the one trick pony, like the guy who shows up and everyone. I just keep talking about wine all the time. Oh no! But it, I think it is. It's very interesting. And it's so deep, and everyone that's, generally has it. You know, I think that's that's probably one of the things that I learned most here today is just how much more there is to wine than just red stuff in a glass. Yeah, there's the environment, the weather the supply chain, all the stuff that goes into it at the restaurant and all yeah. that, and and that it can be corked. Yeah. Oh, and it's so gross. And if my wine smells like a dead dog. Yeah. Oh, it's so gross. Then And you should be it. able to cork that and return it to the store. Oh, okay. Or, to, or send it back at the restaurant, and they'll get credit for it. And you should have get a replacement bottle. That should be standard operating procedure. Word to the wise. Yeah. Like if you, if you get it and take it back. And then sometimes you do just want a glass of something red. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I get there all the time. Right, and so right, it's right. nice to have a few bottles of like fifteen, ten, fifteen dollar bottles. Just, just like ready to go, like a daily driver. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, and, Jerome. Uh, Happy who to be knows? Here. Maybe we'll be able to do it again. I would love to. All right. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, just go to Podbean.com and you can become a patron. And keep the show on the air. Also, if you like the music at the beginning, the album is called Deep Teal. And the artist is Adrian Edson. It's available on Amazon Music. And if you want the full story of the trip around the world, the book, the Kindle book, and the audiobook can all be found on Amazon.com, Sailing into Oblivion, the solo nonstop voyage of the Mighty Sparrow. Fair winds and following seas.